Good morning, church. It's so good to see you. Uh, this is the first time in a long time I've been um, helping participate in Sunday morning, certainly since we've been back. And it's such a uh, great joy uh, to worship with you today. And if you're uh, joining us from online, as Todd said, we welcome you. We're glad um, that you're tuning in. I invite you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 46. Uh, Last week, if you were here, you'll remember that George gave us a strong word of encouragement from Exodus chapter 24, where he made uh, a main point that um, the Creator God, who's in majesty and dominion and authority over all things, all-powerful, is the same God who wants to be in relationship with us. That he wants to be our friend, which is amazing that this almighty, majestic creator God wants to be our friend as our covenant God. And he made the point that because that is so, we can trust him. We can trust what he says in his word, particularly in times of need, because he is a God who is committed to us as our friend, as our covenant God. Now, this morning I want us to look at Psalm 46. Not only is it because it's my, one of my favorite chapters in scripture, as I'm sure it's many of yours, but also because it builds on that point that George made last week, the trustworthiness of God. Friends, there's a lot of passages in Scripture that talk about what it means or looks like to trust God. Psalm 46 isn't really like that. Psalm 46 instead describes for us the God who is worthy of our trust. You see, Psalm 46 is a hymn of hope. That ancient Israel sang, Uh, just like we heard it sung over us, actually. They heard it sung in worship. And they sang it uh, precisely in, in moments where all else seemed hopeless. They sang it to remind themselves of their hope, the hope that they had in the Lord. And they sang it often. And friends, I think most certainly we need that reminder today. Psalm 46 is a message of hope, so let's read it in hope, starting with verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength. He is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stand forever. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for yet another day, another Sunday, where we can gather together as your people, as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ to worship you. 
to feast upon your word, to sing your word, to pray your word, and to be shaped by your word, by your spirit. And so, Father, I pray as we gather here to look at Psalm 46, that you would speak to us, that we wouldn't just be informed, but transformed. Meet with us, O Lord, for your servants listen. We pray in the blessed name of the risen King Jesus. Amen. There's a a quote, I'm sure y'all have heard it before. It says that human beings can live 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes on average without air, but we cannot survive four seconds without hope. I've heard that a lot. I'm sure you have too. Uh, But I came across it recently in an Andy Crouch article. And and when I read it this time around, I'm telling you, it just arrested me. I just felt like it resonated differently this time. And I think one of the reasons is because, you know, it's mostly true. You know, Tim Keller from his just survey of the scriptures says that we are, as human beings, we are unavoidably and irreducibly hope-based creatures. (laughs) We were designed to be hope people. And not, 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 you know, pie-in-the-sky type of hope, unrealistic hopes, but, but an assurance, a confident expectation based in a sure foundation, an assured reality, that type of hope. We were created to have that. It seems actually that science agrees with that. One of the top neuroscientists in the world, Tali Sherat, I'm, I'm probably mispronouncing her name, but she concluded from her study on human emotion that hope is essential to our survival. It is hardwired into our brains. It is the difference between healthy life and despair, hope. So it resonates because I I think it's true. (laughs) But also because that quote is so relevant today. I don't know if y'all have been keeping score at home, but we are living in a world that's increasingly, at least seemingly, hopeless. Right? I mean, 2020, my goodness. I mean, just think of all the things that we've seen and have experienced both personally or through brothers and sisters or in our communities. I mean, it's just enough to make you want to quit. Just think about the persecuted church this year. We don't talk about that that often, but what month is this? I can't remember. (laughs) What are we in? August? This is August. And already there's been almost 4,000 Christians martyred across the world, 10,000 churches that have either been burned or attacked. Think about all the injustice that we see all around the world, particularly in the United States. Now, it's always there. It's always been there. But this year and previous years, recently, it seems as if there's this new horrible, evil thing being exposed every other day. And it's good they're being exposed, but it's overwhelming. Broken politics. Untrustworthy leaders and whatever party. I mean, it's just, it's all a mess. Oh, yeah, and by the way, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. <laughs> it's turned our lives upside down, our country's lives upside down, the world upside down. It's brought nothing but personal loss and fear and just instability and in everything that we're used to. The world is divided. Our nation is divided about just about everything. And even the church finds itself divided often over how best to address those things. I mean, it's enough just to make your head spin, all of that. But here's the deal. We still have our personal problems. 
Unfortunately, our personal problems don't go away when those big ones come into view. We still struggle with depression. We still struggle with anxiety and our own personal insecurity. Some of us are grieving. Some Some of us, all three of those things. Some of us are struggling in our families, with our marriages, or other important relationships, or at our jobs. As Todd prayed for, I mean, I'm sure most of our families, at times anyway, maybe all the time, feel overwhelmed by the new normals that have been forced onto our lives and our families by COVID. (laughs) And when you add all that stuff up, I mean, my goodness, it feels like hope just isn't there. It feels like fear and worry and all those other things have come in the truckload. It just all feels hopeless sometimes. So the, the, the main question I want us to think about today isn't, do you need hope? I know that we need hope. You know that. It's not even really, do you have hope? Because every single person in the world hopes in something, particularly right now. The main question is, where are we finding our hope? Where are we placing our hope? What are we looking to for that real, true hope? Because here's the deal, not all hopes are the same. And when we have false hopes, those false hopes will inevitably fail us, which will always leave us worse off than we were before. In fact, this psalm teaches us that there's not one thing in this world, whether it's a program, person, government, whatever else, that's worthy of our hope. It says that there's only one thing worthy enough. There's only one thing unfailing and unswerving and strong enough. There's only one thing worthy of our hope, church, and that is the one true and living God. And what we've got to hear this morning is no matter what our trouble is, no matter what your issues are, your problems are, whether if you're the cause of them or someone else's, no matter what keeps you up at night, no matter what is raging inside your heart or in your mind, whatever that battle is, whatever it is that makes you feel hopeless, the great news of Psalm 46, brothers and sisters, is that God is the hope of the hopeless. And Israel needed that reminder often, and we do too. (laughs) So there's three things I want us to see about the hope of God. First off, there is hope in the power of God. Two, there's hope in the presence of God. And thirdly, there's hope in the victory of God. First off, there's hope in the power of God. We see this in verses 1 through 3. The context of this passage is is somewhat debatable. Most scholars seem to think that it's referring to that great act of deliverance in which God rescued his people when they were outgunned, outmatched, outmaneuvered by the Assyrian army. They were surrounded. It's the second greatest act of God's deliverance in the Old Testament. I tend to agree with that. But what I love about Psalm 46 is that the language that's being used here, it's of such cosmic scope. Whatever the context, you and I can apply the meaning of this passage to any and every situation that faces us as God's people, however personal. And this is why, I mean, this is why I get that. Look at verses two and three. It says, the earth gives way. He's describing trouble here. He's describing Israel's problems. He says, the earth gives way, the mountains tremble, and the sea roars, and it foams. That's not describing the Assyrian army. However threatening and terrifying the Assyrians were, this is describing something much greater, something much more terrifying. In fact, scholars say that what is being described here in a poetic way is Genesis 3, when 
God's good and ordered creation has unraveled in the fall. So this psalmist is essentially saying that the, the greater trouble that's behind all of our troubles, no matter how bad they are, I mean, you can be going through the worst. You can be experiencing the worst. The, 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 the man behind the curtain, what's behind that is when the world broke, when Adam and Eve sinned, when sin and death entered the world. Everything that assaults us, everything that frightens us, everything that is broken in this world is a result of that. It's terrifying. But what's amazing is this author doesn't spend very much time talking about those things. This passage does not start with verse 2. It starts with verse 1. As terrifying as those things are, you think he would have went on a little bit about it. But that's not even the first word he mentions. What's the first word he mentions? The best way you can start a paragraph, he starts with the name of God. This man's focus was not on the turmoil and the chaos and the confusion around him. His hope was not in the temporal, powerless things of an ever-changing world. His hope was rooted in the eternal, omnipotent, unchangeable God. And it's that God-centeredness, that God-focus that he had that informs the rest of this chapter. Now, this is a teaching moment for me because as I was reflecting upon that, I just thought to myself, you know what? When Barton feels overwhelmed most often, when I give in to my fear, when I feel like all is hopeless, it's usually because I've been spending too much time fixating on the power of whatever Goliath is in front of me rather than trusting in the infinitely greater power of God. We all have masks on, so I can't know if you're nodding along with me. I'm just going to assume there's some of you out there that, that fall into that same trap. Thank you, Pat. But for those of you that do, verse 1 gives us kind of a corrective surgery. It gives us a better focus. Three things about God's power. First off, God's power is protective. It says God is our refuge. I grew up in Germantown in 19, well, I grew up there, but I remember the year 1994. If y'all lived in Memphis or in Germantown back then, you might remember this, but that summer there was a string of tornadoes. It felt like every summer um, or rather, every weekend that summer, the, the sirens went off and, you know, it just felt like there's this tornado coming. And so whenever the sirens went off, I mean, seriously, like five weeks in a row, it felt like. We turn on the news and the expert on the news says, y'all have to go, you know, in a closet or in a tub. And that man was the expert. So, I, you know, we went into the tub and I was usually the first one in the tub. That's neither here nor there. But, you know, they said, if you want to be safe during this storm, go under the closet, go in the tub. We felt safe until the big one came. It was like an F3, I'm not sure. It went down the street that was perpendicular to ours. My dad saw it out the window. I can still remember the house shaking a little bit. Everything was just dark green. It's terrifying. After it was over, our house wasn't damaged. We went outside. The, the house that was perpendicular to ours just right across the street was split in half. It was a dollhouse. Right down the road, Houston High School had an entire wing knocked off. That same summer, all the new houses built in subdivision, all of them had a storm shelter. You know why? Because they knew a tub wasn't enough. Not for an F3 tornado anyway. 
I mean, they had, they had steel-reinforced rooms and all the new houses. Now, if, you, if all you have is a tub, I mean, use it. Be smart. But come on. When there's big-time trouble, like a, a big-time tornado, we need something more than a tub to protect us. And what this author is saying, when real trouble comes our way, we, not, we must not waste our time with the things in this world that cannot possibly help us. And don't waste your time going to money or other people's opinion or your own faculties or your know-how. When real trouble comes, you know what you need, Christians? You need God. And this author says that's the good news. That's what God offers in this passage. But notice how beautifully it's written. It doesn't say that God offers us a refuge to go into. He offers himself as the refuge. This is why Christians, he, he, is, the, he is the shelter, brothers and sisters, that we're able to take refuge in. God himself, that's what this says. And that's why Christians were able to have defiant hope in this world, no matter what faces us or God's church. That's why no matter how sad we are or what we're grieving, we can still have joy in our hearts. You know why? Because the creator God, who's omnipotent and all-powerful, who forms stars in his hands and still holds them in place, is the same God who welcomes us into a relationship with himself and offers himself to us as a never-failing bulwark. How amazing is that? Friends, why, oh, why do we go to lesser things when God himself offers himself to us as a refuge? He's a protective power. Secondly, he, he's, uh, his power is more than sufficient. We see um, not only is God our refuge, he is also our strength. Now, I don't think this is saying that when we are weak and at the bottom of our rope that God is going to supply us strength and make us courageous. I don't think that's entirely untrue. I just don't think that's what he's talking about here, given the, ton, the context. I think what he is describing right here is infinitely more hopeful than that. I think what this man is saying is that when we are at the bottom of our rope, when we are weak, when we are vulnerable, or most vulnerable, it is then that God himself is our strength. And the reason I think that is because look at verses 2 and 3. If those things are really happening, if the earth is giving way <laughs> and mountains are trembling and the sea is roaring and it really doesn't matter how strong we are we're going down if those things happen i mean seriously they're just things that happen in this life things that happen to us our families and our loved ones it does not matter how equipped we are it doesn't matter how savvy we are it does not matter who our friends are we're just not going to be strong enough to meet whatever that trouble is but here's the good news this is saying that whenever God sovereignly allows a trouble to befall us, he is our strength to lean on. As Todd said in his children's message, Jesus is our rock. Allow him to be our rock. <laughs> lean on him. He wants you to. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can feel ashamed that I'm weak or I don't have everything together. I don't know if it's just a, a human thing or a Barton thing, but... But sometimes we feel, I think, ashamed that we're weak and we don't have anything together and we're not sure what to do. Friends, this verse is precisely for people like us who are weak. This verse tells us exactly what we're supposed to do when we do not know what to do. It's to lean on him who is our strength. He is our strength. Lastly, his power is always available. What does it say? It says that he is a very present help in trouble. That word trouble, the aspect of it is a tight place. Brothers and sisters, have you ever been in a tight place before? 
a tight place. That's, um, you're just, you feel like you're drowning. There's no relief from whatever you're experiencing. You feel isolated, alone. No one's ever gone what you're going through. That's the way you feel. Sometimes you might even feel as if God himself has abandoned you. Have you ever felt that way? It's a tight place. This says when you're in that tight place, God is a very present help to you. God is always available to his people. But this is saying that when you are at your most vulnerable, when you are in a tight place, God is exceedingly near to you. David says this in Psalm 23, another one of our favorite chapters when we're going through trouble. Uh, some of you know that by heart. For the first three verses, David is, is just praising God. He's celebrating God, talking about God in third person. And he's telling the church, he's, God is our shepherd. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And he's just going on and on until he gets to verse 4 when he starts reflecting upon his own troubles. When he starts reflecting upon his own tight places. And he's telling the church about who God is, but then he starts thinking about that valley and goes, God, but when I'm walking through that valley, you are with me. It's like him and God are the only people in the room. He's talking to God personally. God was exceedingly near to King David in that valley and in this tight place. And what this is saying is that he's exceedingly near to you too, church. It's how comforting. God's power is protective. It's sufficient. It's always available. Now, this is the interesting part. This author does not just tell us those things to make us smarter. He, he tells us those things so that we would massage it down into our heart and actually live in light of it for our benefit. <laughs> Look at ver verse 1. He describes God. Verse 3 he describes all of the wickedness and evil and just chaos out there. But then in verse 2, he says, I don't care about all that stuff out there. In light of who he is, church, we will not be afraid. I just find that amazing, by the way, that he just chose not to be afraid in life. How's that even possible? It's nothing magical. He just chose to. And it wasn't because he stuck his head in the sand. He knew exactly the, the trials and tribulations that were facing him and his church. He didn't put his head in the sand. He wasn't just having positive vibes or thoughts. He chose not to be afraid because God was with him. Church, I will not fear. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Paul says the same thing in Romans 8. If God is for us, who's against us? A lot of stuff is against us. But Paul is saying if God is for us, if he's with us, the creator of the cosmos, it doesn't matter who's against us. Friends, verse 1 is reminding us that we have no reason to fear when God is our refuge. We have no reason to fear. However, when we do fear, God offers himself to us as a refuge all the same. Friends, there is hope in the power of God. Look to him. Secondly, there's power in the presence of God. This, this man, this author, he, was, he had his eyes fixated on the Lord like he was supposed to, but he, he was still, I mean, he was still surrounded by very serious threats, and he was real about that. All right, which just goes to show you, God never promises that his people will be free from conflict, but this is what he does promise. He promises that he is with us in the midst of those troubles. God is not some transcendent being that just wound the clock and left us. He promised to walk with us through those storms and those valleys and those tight places. 
He's with us, and he's able to keep us. God has committed his presence to you. Now, first off, that means that God's presence, it satisfies us. We see this in verse 4 where he says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Most ancient cities or forts or fortresses were built over streams and waters. So in case they were attacked, they would have a constant source of nourishment. Now, Israel had that. They had a, an underground uh, uh, aqueduct under Jerusalem that was sustaining them. The Assyrians didn't know that. Israel was sitting pretty. And I'm sure that when they heard verse 4 sung over them, they thanked God for that wonderful provision. But I guarantee you that wasn't the first thing they thought about, that aqueduct. When they heard that there is a river whose streams make glad the people of God, they thought about the spiritual significance, the theological significance of what that word means, river. In God, brothers and sisters, there is a stream who makes glad the people of God. The river of life, for instance, in the Garden of Eden, which was synonymous, by the way, with God's presence. God's presence is life. When they heard verse 4 sung over them, they said, God is the one who sustains us. God is the one who satisfies us. It does not matter what our deprivation is in this life or what our circumstances are. If you are with God, if God is with you, you don't need anything else. Have you ever met someone, another believer, who is just going through something horrible? And that believer has a smile on their face, like a genuine smile. They might be grieving, they might be upset, they might be sad, but there's joy in their hearts. And you're how in the world are you joyful? Because of the satisfying presence of God. Friends, God is present with all of us, but we experience his satisfying presence through his word. Psalm 1 tells us that blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the wicked. Blessed is the man who, who, who rather um, delights in the law of God. The way of the wicked was essentially dismissing God, rejecting God, following the wisdom of this world. But blessed is the man who uh, delights in the law of God who meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. His fruit will bloom in due season. His leaves will not wither. He will prosper in all that he does. Because he's spending time with the Lord through his word. God shows up powerfully in his word. That's why he gives it to us. When we read it, it's as if he's sitting right next to us, church. Because it's his spoken word that he gives to us that we might be in intimate fellowship with him. I have found in my life that when I feel most uprooted, when I feel most malnourished, is when I'm listening to the voices of this world more than I am the voices of God. God is present in his word. That's why we take the Bible seriously here at second, because God shapes us, he speaks to us, he nourishes us in his word. Secondly, God's presence sustains us. We see this in verse 5. It says, God is in our midst. When God is in our midst, he says, (laughs) no matter if the earth gives way or the mountains tumble, nothing, nothing shall move his people. We are in his grasp and nothing's going to snatch us out of his hand. He has committed, obligated himself to you, church, as your covenant God, as your helper. And this is what that means. First off, he tells us when God helps us. He says, God will help us when morning dawns. I love this phrase. Again, it's another military phrase. Back then when a a town, um, you know, Israel was being attacked and their city was being besieged, the attacking army, the Assyrians in this case, would keep them up through all hours of the night. Just get them all tired and worn out. 
that when dawn came, they would give the full throttle attack, thinking that they would be at their weakest moment in their most vulnerable state. So this is what the author's saying. When you are at your most vulnerable, when you don't feel like you're going to make it, when you're at your weakest moment, that is when God shows up to help. He helps at other times, but you can count on him arriving for you when morning dawns. It's an assured reality. He is saying when we are done looking to all the other false hopes of this world, when we're finally on our knees with our hands stretched out to God, that is when the help of the helpless comes, he says. We've heard it said before, listen, God sometimes shows up before, during, or after the trouble. But whenever he shows up, it is always the right time. We see him do this all throughout scriptures. He showed up before the rains came for Noah, but it was the right time. When Abraham was out up on the mountain with Isaac, God showed up then during that, but it was the right time. God showed up for Mary and Martha after their brother had died, but that was the right time. Friends, it feels like Friday right now. And some of you have felt like it's Friday for a long time, but Sunday is coming. God shows up when morning dawns. That's the promise of the gospel. He shows up. I don't know why he allows us to experience some of the miserable things that we do. I don't, but I do know why he allows me to experience trouble. It's because I would never trust him or know him as my strength and refuge if he didn't. Hebrews tells us that God shakes the foundations of this world so that he might firm up that which is eternal, his church, his kingdom, his people. Paul pled with the Lord that he would remove this thorn, but he came to to boast in that thorn because it caused him to lean into the strength of the Lord. His power was made perfect in his weakness. I don't know why God allows us to experience some of the things that we do, but we would not trust him as our refuge and strength if he didn't. Lastly, he tells us how God helps us. This is how amazing God is, how powerful he is, church. Look what it says. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. The world and our flesh and the devil, all those ancient powers closing in, stronger than we are. But what does it say? God utters his voice and the world melts. That's how powerful our God is. <laughs> Just one voice, one word in the world, and the, the whole world melts. All of his enemies and all of our enemies just fade away. Why do we not have to be afraid in this life? Because, because the one who spoke the entire world into existence by the power of his word is the same God who's going to use that same power to unmake all of his enemies and all of our enemies. It's that God who promises to be with us. That's why we don't have to be afraid. He's with you. There's hope in the power of God. There's hope in the presence of God. And lastly, there's hope in the victory of God. I love verse 8 so much. It says, come and behold the works of the Lord. Friends, don't you think it's amazing that the first command in this passage, which is, by the way is in verse 8, the first command in this passage is not a command for human action or for me and you to go do something. The only command in this passage is for us to observe divine action. By the way, this isn't giving us a get-out-of-jail-free card. This isn't calling us to be lazy. Of course, we're supposed to engage into the mission of the Lord to expand his kingdom as his church. But this is telling us, just be sure that you're hoping in the right things. 
Christian, don't put your hope in yourself or own works righteousness. Don't put your hope in the Christian sitting next to you. Don't put your hope in the missions department. Don't put your hope in the session. Certainly don't put your hope in your pastors. Put your hope in whom hope is found. God alone whom salvation belongs to. Hope in him. He is our victory. He says, behold the works of the Lord. When the day grows long, when it seems as if our gospel ministry is going nowhere, when it seems like the forces of hell have the upper hand, he says, come and behold the works of the Lord. Salvation belongs to our God. That phrase where he says the works of the Lord, that refers to his faithful action for our benefit. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see that God achieved victory for his people. But this is referring, much like Revelation, to that end-time victory. It's giving us a snapshot of the end to foster hope in the present. And the whole point is this. No matter how bad it gets out there, the end of the story is this, Christians. God wins. One day justice will roll. One day righteousness and peace will mark the land. One day the lion will lay with the lamb. That is an assured reality for us. And because of that, we can live by faith in the present. We can strive without ceasing. We can labor with joy even though ministry is hard and it's difficult. We can do it with joy and hope because of the day to come. There is hope in the power of God. There's hope in the presence of God and there's hope in the victory of God. But friends, it is hard to believe these promises sometimes, I think. It's hard to. And it's mainly hard because our troubles oftentimes feel more real to us than an ancient chapter from an ancient book. But friends, if that's you, if you struggle believing this or any other chapter in Scripture, just remember that God is not some distant deity that doesn't care about you. The Christian faith is not a fill-in-the-gap philosophy. Psalm 46 is not a whole bunch of just platitudes. God entered history. He entered space and time. He became man, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the incarnate word. He is the embodiment of Psalm 46. Psalm 46 is about him, and we can believe it because God became man. If you have trouble believing, just brothers and sisters, behold Christ. All over this passage, we see that God is with us. God is with us. Friends, that's not metaphor. That's not a metaphor. That actually happened. The God of Psalm 46 is the God who was born in Bethlehem, who was given the name Emmanuel, God with us. It's the same God who took on our humanity and our flesh and went to the cross for our sakes. He's the same God who dined and fellowshiped with his disciples, who touched lepers and loved sinners. He's the same God who, after he ascended into heaven, sent us his spirit so that we could be in more intimate fellowship with him now than even the Old Testament saints enjoyed. He's the one who speaks to us through his word. He's the one who sits with you right now. He's the one that says, come to me all who labor or have you laid now will give you rest. He is also the river who satisfies and nourishes you. He says, when you drink from the water I give you, you will never grow thirsty. He is the prince of peace who brings peace not only to you but to the world. Jesus says, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not be afraid. In this world you will have trouble, but take fear, or rather take heart because I've overcome the world. How did he do that? With the utterance of his voice on the cross. When he said, it is finished, and he disarmed all of his and our enemies. 
And because of his finished work on the cross, we can believe the assurance of his promises on the day to come that one day justice will roll and righteousness will mark the land and all things will be made new and right. Friends, if you have trouble believing Psalm 46, simply look to Christ. It's actually because of Christ that we can look at verse 11 and apply it to ourselves. Verse 11, he is the Lord of hosts. He is the commander, the legion of angels. One angel of whom would melt our face if we saw. He's the the commander of legions of angels. He's an authority over all things. He is not to be trifled with. Because of what Christ has done, the Lord of hosts calls himself the God of Jacob. And he has committed himself to you, who is the God of Jacob. He didn't say the God of Abraham or the God of Isaac. He said the God of Jacob. Jacob, that coward. Jacob, that liar. Jacob, that man who struggled to believe and trust and hope in God all the days of his life, that God in his grace still embraced Jacob and made him Israel. And this is his promise to every single one of you. When you have faith in Jesus Christ, he does the same to you too. You do not have to be afraid, but when you are afraid, you can trust him as your refuge and your strength. Do you know that this psalm was the basis of uh, Mighty Fortress is our God? written by Martin Luther. Martin Luther experienced horrible trouble in this life. So much, I mean, we don't relate. I don't have time to explain all the things that he experienced, but he was, he was attacked spiritually. He had horrible health, depression, anxiety. He said in his weakest moments, when he was most vulnerable, and when he was beside himself, he would say to his best friend, come, it's time to sing the 46th chapter. You know Why? Because when all seems hopeless out there, he needed to be reminded that God was with him. And he is the hope of the hopeless. We live in a world that seems hopeless, church, but don't look to the things of this world for rescue and hope. Look to the Lord your God, the God of Jacob, who commits himself to you as your refuge and your strength and your ever-present help in trouble. Praise be to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful. So grateful that you take little Jacobs like us. Those who have imperfect faith, who falter every day to hope and trust in you, to believe the promises of the gospel, but you love us still. Father, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would firm us up. That you would cause our eyes to set upon you in this crazy world and that we might be at peace that we might have hope and joy for truly there is hope in the power of god there's hope in your presence and there's hope in your victory we love you O lord and pray these things in the blessed name of christ amen